And one of the procedures they always used to make me do was to do a workup, make them a new set of dentures. And it was interesting that half the patients I made new dentures for said, thank you very much. I don't need implants now. I'm actually quite happy with these. Um, and they're much better than they were before. I really don't think I want implants. I went, okay, maybe a lot of these patients don't always need implants. They just need to have well-fabricated dentures. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. FP1, FP2, FP3. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I'm not talking about filtering face pieces, i.e. FFP3 masks. Like we're all experts now on FFP2 masks and FFP3 masks, unfortunately, due to the COVID pandemic. But do you know what I mean when in the context of implant restorations, what I mean by FP2 and FP3? Well, I'm embarrassed to say I had zero idea when I came to talking to our guest today, Harpal Chana, who's a consultant, restorative dentist, and the pinnacle of full arch implant prosthesis. Like this guy does some most complex work. The kind of work Harpal Chana does is based on referral work, complex uh, full arch prosthesis work. So it's a great honor to have him on the show today. He's someone who I've looked up to for many years, like all the clinicians that I have on the show. I had a, a pro impromptu lunch with him uh, in Pizza Express, actually, just behind his practice in Tennington, when I was absolutely starstruck. Um, I was like one year qualified. Uh, and back then I knew who he was, I knew what he was about. And I went to a few more of his study clubs in the local area. And he just is a, a brilliant clinician. He, what he has to share today is all about the classifications like basically it's implant classifications and we're gonna delve deeper into what a GDP, what the average GDP ought to know about full arch prosthesis. Like, okay, fine, you may or may not be placing implants, you may or may not be restoring full arch implant dentistry. However, do we owe it to our patients to understand what FP1, FP2, FP3 means, what the surgery might involve, and to basically be able to give our patients more information rather than just take a massive step back and say, you know what, I don't know, speak to the speak to the specialist. Uh, I don't know, you, you just speak to the specialist. I think we can do better. So I'm hoping this episode will benefit you as much as it benefited me. Sometimes you have to just be straight up uh, honest about what you do and what you don't know about. So uh, I know a fair bit about occlusal appliances, resin bond bridges, managing tooth wear, uh, occlusal design. What I don't know much about is um, implants, okay? So this is like my big weakness area because I don't place. But I think, like I said before, I owe it to my patients to learn more. So this is part of my journey and I hope I'm sharing that journey with you and you will find benefit from it. For those of you who are listening on high quality speakers or headphones, you probably realize that my voice sounds a little bit hoarse at the moment. This is because uh, just recently I was at the Tubules Congress. Uh, that's called the Dental Tubules Congress. It's the best dental event of the year. There was Ed McLaren, Marco Veneziani, and some of the great British lectures that I absolutely adore. These specialists which uh, absolutely inspire me so much. And, and you guys, so many of the producerati were there. It was so great to see you. I'm not going to uh, begin to name all of you people that I met for the first time and were reunited with for, for many times over. It generally felt like we used to have these um, events called 
called the BDSA as a student, which is the, the British Dental Students Association. And they were the best nights out. Like we'd go to like a dental school, maybe in like Manchester, and we'd all meet up and it'd be the best thing ever having um, dental students from every uni around the country. It really had that great, positive, uh, inclusive vibe that only a Tubal's Congress can offer. So save the date in your diary for 6th and 7th of October next year. Uh, vocation to be confirmed. We're thinking maybe Midlands. Uh, so we'll keep you updated on that. But it was so great to see and, and speak with every one of you. Thanks for saying hi for those of you who, who, who listen to the podcast. And it was just... It was actually really weird. People coming up to me, dentists coming up to me. Uh, you know you are, guys. Thank you so much. Saying, let's take a selfie. I was like, yeah, cool. Let's take a selfie. Or, or some of you coming up saying, oh, I'm just a massive fangirl or whatever. That, that was really weird for me, but it was just absolutely amazing. I had such a great time. It was lovely to see every one of you. Uh, and I hope that we can continue to meet up in face-to-face events. My next one will be the BACD Pascal Manier, 12th of November. That's where I'll be next. So if, if, if you're there and you listen to the podcast, please do say hello. The protrusive dental pearl I have for you today is non-implant because I can't teach you anything implant related. But what I can teach you or, or share with you based on what Givinda Birth shared with me many years ago, this is probably like a, a BARD, British Academy of Aesthetic Dentistry meeting about four, four maybe three, four years ago now. Uh, and a really cool thing he shared with me about um, the protocol for placing a crown or placing indirect restorations. He encouraged me to stop booking my patients in for a fit appointment because that puts a lot of pressure on you as a dentist and on your technician, especially when you start doing more complex cases. So what I mean by that is sometimes you may have had it before where you um, seat the crown on and either the occlusion is way off or there's an open contact or there's an aesthetic compromise and the patient's not happy. So in those scenarios, it's like, oh, I'm so sorry, we have to remake this now. Whereas the better way to do it, what Govinda taught me, and I'm happy to share with you, is to tell your patient that, hey, this is not a fit, we're gonna do a try-in. So it's a try-in appointment. It's just a change of a name. It really is a fit appointment, but you're changing, you're framing it as a try-in appointment. And if everything goes well, the aesthetic's good, the fit's good, the contacts are good, and you're happy with the level of work, then you will go on to cement it that day. But if there's anything that you're not happy with, or if anything the patient's not happy with, that's a perfect opportunity to say, okay, this is what we learned from today's try-in. Let me get this corrected for you. And at the next appointment, we will do another try or a fit. So 19 out of 20 times, you'll probably go ahead and fit anyway at that appointment. But it's just the labeling of the appointment, which I quite like. So sometimes I have a tricky case or a complex patient, and I think I will brand it as a try-in. I know some dentists who always brand it as a try-in. It's about the way that the patient perceives uh, that to be, but I think there's, there's merit in using that terminology for your appointments. So I hope that communication gem was useful. Hat tip to Govinda Birth for sharing that one with me some years ago. So let's join Harpal Chana and learn all about full arch implant dentistry. Harpal Chana, welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast. How are you? Very well, thank you, Jazz. Very, very kind of you to ask, I'm fine. Hope you're well as well. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. We just had a you know, little chat before we started uh, recording about how COVID has affected our, our different worlds, and mm. uh, you know, it, it's been it's been tough, and we're still you know while we're recording now, it's still ongoing and uh, the extreme pressures. But oh, absolutely, I think we are you know now that we're getting vaccinated and stuff. Hopefully, the end is in sight, and we're having a little chat about that. But yeah, health health is wealth, as you know, mm. uh, and that's the the, the main mantra. Um, I wanted to do a small introduction for you for for those dentist around the world listening uh, and then I'm going to get you to introduce yourself so sure. uh, Harpal we met at a pizza express uh, <laughs> many years ago uh, outside 
I'm not a cheapskate. I would have taken you somewhere else, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was geographical convenience. I'm sure if it was Michelin star, you still would have taken us. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So you, you practice in, in Teddington, That's where right. you practice. Uh, uh, I always go Teddington. I, when I go to the Nando's, I always see your practice. And I say, yeah, Harper works there. Uh, so, so that's that's your sort of claim to fame for me as well. But uh, you know, you're a, a well-known uh, restorative consultant. Uh, you do a lot of advanced cases. When I think of zygomatic implants, I think of you. Now, I don't know much about zygomatic implants, and you can help us a mm. little bit with that. But even more, we're going to dumb it down even more to just fixed um, or full arch cases for the GDP, right? So the GDPs that mm -hmm. aren't doing them or are starting to dabble to give us some insight so we can better inform our patients. That's the, the point of today. And I can't think of anyone better than you who's so uh, vastly experienced in, in all forms of, of, of full arch cases. So tell us, how did you get involved with full arch cases? A little bit about um, your sort of history as a you know, restorative consultant. How much of that, how much time do you spend in hospital now versus practice? Mm. Give us a flavor of that kind of stuff. Uh, well, yeah, thank you, Jess. Uh well, my experience really is uh, is from a general practice perspective. I started life as a general practitioner. Uh, I worked in general practice uh, probably a good four years, actually, but I was very keen and hungry to learn. I was very much keen on fixed and removable prosthodontics. That's sort of one area I decided to sort of focus on, really. Um, I had a little dabble in the early days with orthodontics, and uh, although I thought that was my chosen career pathway, um, I soon learned, actually, uh, due to relapse problems that it just didn't tickle my fancy. <laughs> so it was a big awakening. And, I, you know, you're finding a path in your early careers as to what you like. And I always uh, enjoyed fixed and removable prosthodontics, but there was always something about it that I didn't quite understand. Um, and I was very keen to do uh, uh, the MSc in fixed prosthodontics at the Eastman. So actually a year or so after qualifying, I, I started to apply to guys in the Eastman. And uh, no surprises, I didn't get in straight away because, I, you know, the competition was quite high. Uh, I hadn't had fellowship and my, my background was very much general practice. But I plodded on and I continued uh, applying and the third time round I, I managed to get in. And um, thanks very much to great mentors, actually. At that time, I, I was mentored by people like uh, Martin Hussain, um, Cash would be as well. Cash, I'm sure you know of as well, a great guy. Um, and Martin Kelleher, actually, who was my local consultant at, at King's. And um, I used to take a lot of cases uh, over to him just to discuss how to manage them because it was like a great enigma to me. I didn't know how to do a full mouth reconstruction. I saw a lot of wear patients and I wasn't quite sure how to manage these cases. So I, a great report. I just want to interject, actually. You've yes. actually passed the baton along yourself. Like you mentioned, you know, Martin Kelleher, Kashubi, people who inspired yeah. you and whatnot. But um, some episodes ago, I had um, Richard Porter on. Oh, yes. uh, and he mentioned you as as the mentor that and, and, you know that you inspired. So you know it's, oh, it's great that you uh, were inspired, but it's also wonderful to to know that you have also mentored and inspired other great clinicians. So you know it's it's, it's a oh, chain. You, know, you, uh, you receive and you give is well. fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely, I you know I think what Martin's always taught me is is actually education is one of those things that it's a never-ending sort of curve of, of learning, basically. And half the education is actually getting people around you to discuss things in an open fashion so that you can clarify things in your own mind. And I think uh, Martin is great at that, and he still is. Um, I know he's retired, but I still have contact with him, and he's still quite inspirational on that front. 
Um, so yeah, I'm glad other people are are, are taking on board what what uh, I've learned basically over the years, and uh, the, you know the baton gets passed on from generation to generation, uh, from that sense. But yeah, now going back to to the Eastman, I I finished my 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 course there, and uh, I'm. You know, it's one of those things I, I finished and I thought, I still have all these questions. You, you, you've learned a huge amount, but it actually just opens more, you know, pages for you that you don't really understand or, or don't really uh, get clear in your mind at the end of it. And so the hunger was, was there to get more and more information. And thankfully, actually, I managed to carry on at the Eastman for a, a, about six to nine months as a, as a registrar. So I was able to complete more cases. And uh, thankfully, uh, an opportunity opened up as a, a specialist registrar at that time in restorative. And I thought, well, yeah, why not? Let's give it a go. It's not something I intended to do. Um, but uh, thankfully, it, it was the right pathway for me, I think. Uh, and it just opened a whole avenue of further doors to explore and uh, improve my education and understanding of, of fixed and removable prostate. So yeah, I did, uh, did the SPR in restorative dentistry and I credited over 20 years ago now. Um, and it was, again, as soon as I got appointed as a consultant in uh, restorative dentistry, one of my links uh, used to be Queen Mary's Roehampton, uh, which is now closed, so you probably never heard of it. Uh, which is not a million miles away from Kingston, but it used to be quite an epicenter actually for Max Fax prosthodontics. Um, since the Second World War, a lot of research was done there, and um, that's when I first came across uh, Peter Blenkinsop, who was one of the Max Fax consultants, and uh, Professor Brunemark, who used to come over roughly once a month and um, help do these rather large reconstructions. And that was my first ever experience. And, and you uh, had exposure directly to Prof. Balamark uh, showing oh, yeah, you. Oh, yeah, We were in theatres with him and operating. It was, he, And he was a very open guy. I mean, you know, you were half the time mesmerised by his presence. But he was actually a very down-to-earth clinician as well, although he was not a dentist, actually, or even a MaxFax surgeon. Uh, he could relate things very, very easily to uh, the MaxFax field and dental field and... I never quite understood that. I never had the, the, the chance to really ask him either. Why did he explore a dental route? Um, it, it's for an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, you would have thought uh, someone would have been thinking more along his specialty lines. But just shows you how great a man he was. He was very interested in dental alveolar defects and hence the relationship with uh, Peter Blenkinsop and we had an honorary honorary fellowship appointed for him as well so that he could actually work in the department and he brought a great amount of experience and, and wealth to our department um, so much so I actually got the plaque and I put it on my wall actually at the practice uh, when we sadly closed down because uh, like most great things in the NHS uh, things move on and uh, the services got uh, pushed elsewhere basically and uh, we ended up fragmenting some of that service um, in the end. So that's really where my my interest in um, implant reconstruction sort of came from, mostly cancer patients, um, patients who had large maxillofacial defects, missing half their face, basically, and working with some great prosthodontists. Um, Martin Kelleher was there. He was one of the first people who just threw me in at the deep end. Just, there you go, um, you know, get on with it. And um, 
there was a, a sharp learning curve, basically, uh, at, at that period of time. And psychomatics at that time. And what percentage we of your work now is is, is full arch, uh, complex uh, implant reconstruction, um, and what percentage of it is 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 the more you know initial stages of your you know full mouth traditional reconstructions? Yeah, I mean, at the, the practice, I spend um, roughly sort of sixty seventy percent of my time at uh, at Elmfield House, uh, where I take on a lot of referrals, basically on. on patients who have miserable time with dentures or, or they present with a lot of tooth wear. I don't actually have a lot of clinical time available now for true restorative dentistry, I have to say. Um, hence why I know you asked me initially whether I talk about gold on lace, because that was my baby, you know, 20 odd years ago. Um, but actually, I do very little of it now. And so much so that actually I've got great people like Harge and, and Manish at the practice who are, you know, also at the Eastman and they're pretty much at the forefront. So if a patient comes in with a lot of tooth wear and need a full mouth reconstruction, I still assess the patient. Um, I still see the patients jointly with uh, Arge and uh, and Manish, and we jointly plan it together so that I don't lose touch and that sort of thing. But by and large, a lot of that work um, on, on teeth anyway is, is, is managed by the prosthodontist at the practice. But my sort of interest is when they're missing teeth. And having a debate, we have lots of debates at times, you know, when is it the end of the road for those patients with failing teeth? What is a terminal dentition? And that's quite a difficult, you know, question to answer sometimes. And um, um, hence why we do like having joint consultations, because I may have my own views, Manish may have his, and as well as Harge. And uh, we sometimes see the patient jointly just to work out what is savable and what, what, what needs to go. I don't think that happens enough in in private practice because I, I I can see it happening more uh, mm. multidisciplinary meetings in in a hospital based setting, mm. but in a, a private setting I don't think it happens enough and I think it, it, we need more of that. It'd be great to do that. It's just you know how it is the the, the way the business works, the way the, the the diaries works. It can be difficult to arrange that. So um, I know I'm going off tangent, but I just love to know uh, you know a couple of minutes on how do you. How do you actually zone everything so that you have these opportunities to have a um, multidisciplinary sort of a meeting about a patient? Uh, well, as you say, it's extremely difficult. Everyone's part time. Um, you have to make time available for it, to be honest. And uh, the, the interesting thing is that even with referring dentists, I do try and encourage them to come along. I'll try and fit around them to some degree. For example, you know, we get quite a few patients referred from Nick Chard, uh, who's practiced in Staines. And he always wants to be there at the consultation. And I say, absolutely right. It's essential that you are because often you're doing the prosthodontic work in, in tandem with us. So, you know, it is difficult at times and uh, we have to sort of throw around our diaries and, you know, the patient has to accommodate to us as well. But we normally make it work. You know, it may have to work in an evening sometime and we're there till, till eight, nine o'clock um, to see a patient jointly. But that time is so valuable because you can iron out so many problems, actually, and we're all on the same page, and that we all know what each other's roles are. And ultimately, the patient gets, I think, a better uh, better service, by and large. So they will often accommodate um, um, that sort of wish. If their patients are need to be seen at a particular time, that's, you know, that's the only time available. If I can't make myself available to do it for whatever reason, I'm doing an NHS clinic, 
then we just have to impress upon the patient that actually if they want the best outcome, they have to work around us to some degree. And more often than not, they, they will accommodate um, uh, to our desires. Um, but really, it's about getting Especially the right with outcome. the nature of the complex work you're doing, I guess, uh, these patients are, are, are a different beast to your to to you know your normal patient who doesn't have as many problems the 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 scale of their problems are, are not as big and and the type of treatment will be a bit more simple <laughs> i think these patients that you see uh have seen many dentists many specialists in the Absolutely. past and, uh, and they need a major reconstruction henceforth the the, the importance of having that team approach uh, rises more now Harper, you mentioned mm -hmm. the terminal dentition now i was actually going to ask you this as the the last question but i think it will flow so nicely if you don't mind sure. me asking you this when I was a couple of years qualified, I went to uh, an implant-based lecture in Sheffield, and I was absolutely shocked. And at that time, because of my lack of experience, I was disgusted by what I saw because what I saw was photos of patients, and when you know their full-face photos when they smiled, they had teeth, their own teeth. And I was like, oh, brilliant! They've got their own teeth. Okay, I'm in my head. I'm treatment planning. You know, a bridge here, uh, a bit of periodontal stabilization, obviously in the reverse order. Uh, maybe a, a partial denture here, and and the patient will be happy or a couple of implants. But then what I saw was a full clearance and then a full arch, a beautiful full arch reconstruction of implants. And at the time, I just couldn't fathom it. I, I didn't understand, right? It didn't make sense to me. But later it made more and more sense that actually, and you can correct me if I'm wrong and elaborate on this, is that if you have someone who's got severe periodontal bone loss, and if you just let that continue and continue and continue, you'll get to a point where implants may not be a possible option anymore. So I can see why it's such a tough decision to deem someone as a terminal dentition and, and, and decide that actually we need to start fresh by extracting all the teeth. So I, there was a huge shock to me. So can you expand a little bit more about that for dentists who, who to, to help them decide where, at what point is someone terminal that they should be considering sure. a reconstruction like that? Well, I, you know, Jazz, that's a really good question, but it's actually a really difficult answer at times as well because you, you, I can get 10 people in a room and I can show them radiographs and put a clinical scenario together. And you can ask 10 dentists, um, including specialist periodontists, and you can ask them, you know, what stage is this patient terminal? And you'll get 10 different answers because no one really fully understands and grasps what a true terminal dentition is. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We've worked so hard on this Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. Um, for a periodontist, for example, they might be hanging on for sort of three to four millimeters of bone. Um, and then there may be others who, in fact, I had an interesting patient only last week, actually, who came to me for their third opinion. And he was missing his posterior uh, premolars and molars in the maxilla. And he had six remaining upper anterior teeth, which had about 20 to 30 percent horizontal bone loss, actually. Um, and he'd been around the houses and he, he'd said, you know, I've come to the conclusion I've got very little bone in the posterior maxilla. I've been told I just don't have enough to consider implants. 
and I've been told that sinus lifts are, are, you know, are possible, but I might have to wait a year or two before I can have the final reconstruction. I've decided uh, I really want my front six teeth out and I'd like to have this all on four type of uh, reconstruction. And I have to say, I, this is a patient telling me that he felt his teeth were terminal. They were quite rigid. They were quite firm. And I said, well, I, you know, I don't agree with you. I don't, whoever's told you that is, it's certainly an option. But, um, you know, there's mileage in those teeth. There's a possibility that those front teeth could give you another 20 years of service with good maintenance. Your problem is at the back, uh, you know, and we can fix that by other means. But the, the, the criteria for terminal dentition is, is so variable. And I, I certainly have had joint consultations with periodontists who have got very upset when I've said, you know, the patient's not happy, the teeth are loose, you know, they've got 70% attachment loss. There's not much bone remaining back in the maxilla now. You know, this is probably the time to, to, to deal with it. And sadly, my suggestion may be to take some of those teeth out now and while they still have bone to consider implants um, before it gets more complicated. It's never, you know, they can always consider it. Well, like, like with anything, I, I thought you'd give me a magic number. Well, I know, I didn't think that. I was, I was secretly hoping you'd say, yeah. okay, the rule is if there's 75% bone loss and you've got X number of teeth, the formula suggests that you should remove all the teeth and head for implants. Yeah. It's never, ever in dentistry ever going to be as simple as that. And I think you've yeah. just uh, summarized it well that actually it's a gray area uh, and this is where mm. you need multiple inputs to decide, <laughs> along with the patient's values as well, about what determines uh, a terminal dentition. So I don't envy you at all in the, these decisions you have to make, such uh, tough decisions. Oh, yeah, it can be tough. And sometimes we have real arguments with it, which is actually why I, I like having joint consultations, because I'd like to argue my case. Um, <laughs> it's nice to hear from other people's opinions. Um, you know, Harge is coming along the scene um, and, and training quite nicely. And he's sort of exposed to some of this at times. And he asks very simple questions as well. He says, well, why are you taking them out? And why is somebody else, the periodontist, wanting to save them? And I said, a lot of it is subjective experience of how we've dealt with things in the past. Um, and there is no magic cure for a lot of these patients. You know, if the patient may have terminal periodontitis, they may well end up with, you know, peri-implantitis in the future. And that's something else to bear in mind. It's not as if the problem stops there. So, um, uh, uh, you know, it's really understanding the patient's perspective and what their goals and objectives are. And sometimes if they're a complete tangent to yourself, um, it, it, it can be a real challenge. I, I certainly remember presenting a case years ago, which uh, actually Simon Chard, uh, I'm sure you know, used to work at our practice, and uh, we sort of jointly saw together, and she had quite advanced periodontal disease. Lots of consultation. We must have had three or four consultations with her, and we decided at the end of the day, she had a very gummy smile, high lip line, you know, short upper strap lip, um, 70, 80% bone loss, teeth that are loose, ex-smoker, um, and she wanted to to avoid wearing dentures. And, uh, um, you know, we, t we took a very radical decision. We took everything out and put implants in and gave her what I considered a fantastic result. And so did, so did she. She thought it was a brilliant result. And I presented this at a local BDA lecture group. And I have to say, I, I was quite shocked the amount of attacks I got from periodontists. You know, periodontists said, I could have kept those teeth going for another five, ten years. You know, you just needed to section some of those teeth and keep some of the roots out of the bone and you could have splint the others and I said sure you, you, you absolutely could have you, you wouldn't have been wrong but a lot of this is 
discussion and debate. And ultimately, the patient would still have a poor aesthetic result with a high lip line. And uh, once you start getting recession in the horrible black triangle spaces, the patient can live with that. And I said, there's no harm in going down that avenue. But once you show patients photographs of what their teeth are going to look like, once you've had a, a extensive course of periodontal treatment and all the horrible gummy black triangle spaces, I said, they may not want that. Um, so it's really part of your consent process. And if the patient says, yeah, I don't mind, um, you know, I'd rather keep my teeth going for as long as possible. Uh, um, you know, I can accept the fact that they won't be pretty, but they're my own. And that's absolutely fine as well. There's no hard and fast rules about it. It's about tailoring the treatment plan um, to what your patient's wishes and desire once they fully understand all the options. And I think that's the crucial take-home point, really, for general dentists, is, is actually understanding all those options yourself and laying it on the table for the patient. Say, so, well, these are all the various treatment plans that uh, we could consider. There are pros and cons of each. Um, you may not be the right person to do the full arch reconstruction. That's why we think mentoring is, is, is a good thing, so that your patients can still have a course of treatment and we work jointly with the dentists as well so that they understand the reconstruction element um, and often do it jointly with us. Harpal, I'm just imagining the the how thick your patient letters are like they're probably like a, a, each patient gets a book a volume of all the options uh, explanations. <laughs> I try not to make it too thick for to be honest because like most things uh, you know I probably write fewer notes than most dentists uh, surprisingly. And the reason is I want to give it to succinct points. I try to just highlight really what the discussions were with the patient and what avenues we discussed. And I, my general rule is try not to make it more than two sides of A4 because most patients can't take more than that in. And if you provide them with a dossier, which I've certainly seen, and I know some of my colleagues do that as well, um, you know, the, the ability of the patient to retain a lot of that information, although it might be very comprehensive, it might confuse them so much that actually they don't really understand the nuances of the treatment plan at all, because you've given too many, um, too much information overload, basically. So my, and it's the same if you ever get a letter from me from, from the NHS. I, my rule there is one side of A4 paper. If you can say it all <laughs> on one side of A4, then you may miss out some of the salient features. And if somebody wants to elaborate and want more information, I don't have a problem in going back and giving them further information as long as you've got detailed notes for it. But really, I try to give a, a summary sort of option. Um, if somebody else is carrying out a treatment plan, of course, and you're giving them advice, clearly you need to give the dentist a lot more information at that point. But when it comes to, to, to patients and writing to them, I, I try not to overload them with information actually i'd rather give them a few pointers and actually get them back in and discuss again with them because that time is so valuable talking to them face to face um mm -hmm. and understanding their concerns and fears and what their desires are because as i say if you write them a huge letter uh, i guarantee you will, you'll end up probably scaring the life out of them and probably not seeing them again so it's always better to have a good follow-up appointment write to them with yeah, in, in my view, no more than two A4 sides of paper and get them back in and discuss it again to make sure that they understand what the options are and why they want to choose what they want to choose. 
Brilliant. Uh, I'm, I'm now going to, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back onto the, the, the implant theme because we're, we're going on some um, tangents here. Yeah, uh, no and uh, it does a very valuable tangents, I have to say. So we talked about um, the, the gray area of um, deciding if someone's a terminal dentition. I think you covered that beautifully. I think the, the last part of when you summarized that was just phenomenal about uh, the way you pitch it to patients. And that's that's fantastic. We then talked about, obviously, <laughs> I joked about your the letters to patients. But now I want to bring it back to dentist patient. So if you're a GDP and you have an dentist patient in front of you and they're struggling with their denture mm. uh, and then you you want to say, OK, I'm gonna, I can refer you to someone who might be able to help or maybe you're the dentist who, who can sure. play some implants. What are the usual options that people can explore in terms of, you know, I've, you know, there's there are fixed implant reconstructions, there are removal, yes. there are hybrid can you just break it down for the GDP, the newly qualified dentist who who doesn't really know where to begin with sure. classification and, and what, what's available? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, before you even go down the implant avenue, I think the most important part, as you say, is they have unsuccessful dentures. Is try to understand why they're unsuccessful. If a patient comes in with a whole bag of dentures and says, you know, I've been trying 20 different dentists, etc., and I can't seem to find one that works. Um, but this set and that set mixed together seem to be the best. You know, those usually are big warning signs that perhaps those patients are going to struggle. But equally, I recall when I was uh, you know, a registrar, I used to have to um, uh, work up cases for full arch reconstructions with uh, Professor Roger Watson. I don't know if you recall him at, uh, at King's uh, and David Davis. And one of the procedures they always used to make me do was to do a workup, make him a new set of dentures. And it was interesting that half the patients I made new dentures for said, thank you very much. I don't need implants now. I'm actually quite happy with these. Um, and they're much better than they were before. I really don't think I want implants. I went, OK, maybe a lot of these patients don't always need implants. They just need to have well-fabricated dentures. And making good, full, full dentures is, you know, it, it can be extremely challenging as well. But a good prosthodontist should be able to make them. And a good general dentist should be able to make them if they spend time and effort. Um, and that's always the first port of call, I would always say, because if a patient is struggling, you need to work out whether they're, they're those concerns are really genuine. Are there actually technical problems in the denture? Uh, is the patient actually just one of those that can't tolerate dentures? And that's what you're trying to ascertain in the early stages. And you'll be surprised how many patients actually would be satisfied with just that alone. I certainly was. And these were patients on a waiting list for implants. so that, And they were getting it free. So it was no financial uh, incentive for them not to say no at a particular point. So it, it was a, certainly an eye-opener. And it, it was a very valuable exercise as well because it taught you how to plan for the implants as well. Space creation and um, half the technical and restorative problems you could pick up actually in the wax trying stage of how much intraocclusal room that you have. Um, so all of the basic stuff which you think uh, you know probably not that important for for implants is, is actually crucial for implants because it sets the footing for when you go down the implant avenue, what type of treatment uh, avenues you may be considering for a patient. So there's one very good uh, article by Carl Misch, uh, who sadly passed away, on um, implant uh, reconstruction design from FP1 to RP5. Now, that's you may have come across. There are some dentists who, who may not have come across it. Uh, and it's very much to do with whether you give a patient a fixed reconstruction or a removable. And an FP1, so FP means fixed 
prosthesis usually. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're graded into one, two, and three with FP1 just replacing the the, the white part, I should say, of, of a patient's dentition, so the, the, the crown part. So if there hasn't been a huge amount of uh, volume loss in periodontal disease or trauma and all those things, um, then that patient may be suitable for what we call an FP1 type of design. But if there's been a bit of recession uh, or there's some bone loss, um, if you, you have this thing called an FP2, which is also a slightly more complicated sort of a gradation. So it's slightly more recession. So you're replacing not just the white part of the crown, you'd be possibly replacing part of the, a small part of the root form as well. But if the patient's lip line is quite low, they don't show it too much, then it probably doesn't matter if those teeth are slightly clinically longer in their appearance because the patient never shows it. And then you have the FP3, which is actually replacing not just the white part of the tooth, but the pink stuff as well. So you, you can understand there's been quite a lot of volumetric bone loss in these cases. Um, so you, you, you are trying to replace both hard and soft tissues of the bone structure. Um, now, that then leads on to the removable RP4 and RP5. Now, RP4 uh, is actually going to an implant reconstruction, which is purely supported by implants, uh, but it's still removable. So you may, say, have four implants to hold a prosthesis in place. So it's replacing all of the, the white and a lot of the, uh, the red stuff, the pink stuff, but it's anchored by four implants and it's supported by implants. And then you've got the other, the RP5 in, in his uh, list, which is basically same sort of volume loss, but it's maybe supported by two implants or one implant for that matter. And there's partly mucosa supported and it's partly implant supported. Uh, if you don't mind me asking how, because I, I, I learned so much from that because because I don't do implants myself, sometimes you, you never get exposed to the because I've seen it all you know banded about on social media in, in papers and lectures. Oh yes, I did an FP3 or whatever, and you sort of think you know, but you know I, I've never had I've never done my due diligence to actually go through it. So I learned so much, and I know people listening and watching would have learned a lot. Just basically, you've just gone through into from FP1 to RP5, and it, it was crystal clear. I just remembered I was a DCT at Guy's Hostel, and I used to work with restorative consultants. Uh, Sarah Tabiatpour, who, who, who you might know, uh, she uh, she taught me once that, and then some of the consultants taught me once that, uh, what I was making for my patients at a time, they had two implants in the lower canine region. Uh, we had put some uh, locator uh, abutments uh, and the, the housings inside the dentures. Uh, but strictly speaking, she told me that this is not an implant-supported overdenture, and I should use the term implant-retained overdenture because... Uh, and is that just semantics, or is there something in that? Is there a difference between something that's implant-retained and implant-supported, or can you mix and match them? Yeah, that's a good word. The terminology is, 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 is crucial to this and understanding the detail because uh, you're, you're quite right, or she's quite right, I should say, in the sense that the vertical load in that, the implants, if you've just got two implants taking the full load, um, those two implants are going to take a pretty hefty occlusal you know, battering, basically. And usually you just want to stop the denture falling out. A lot of patients' problems is they can't keep the denture in place. Um, so... You know, many years ago, I mean, we're talking over 20 years ago, the McGill conference uh, suggested two implants, as you suggested, was a brilliant way of sorting out patients' lower denture problems. Um, in fact, even one implant is satisfactory to improve denture 
not so much support, resistance to it falling out. And often that was the biggest problem for patients is keeping the dentures in place. So technically you're right, and that's the distinction between the RP4 and the RP5, because an RP4 has implants, and although you've got a removable prosthesis, the implants are taking all the load. The RP5, the implants are there just to assist, so I call those implant-assisted dentures. They stop the denture falling out. But the occlusal loads are still taken, by and large, by the, um, the supporting alveolar the tissues, basically, the soft tissues and, and, and the bone around it. Now, that creates other problems, as you know, um, because over time, that patient will get continued resorption in those regions, and therefore maintenance of those cases is much greater. You often have to reline those cases to avoid overloading the implants in the long term. Um, but no, you, you're quite right. There is a distinction, and understanding that distinction is quite important, because if you expect those two implants to take all the occlusal load, and they still to be there many years later, uh, it can certainly open your eyes in, in terms of functional problems and implant complications. In fact, we've had a, a case recently at uh, Kingston Hospital, an oncology patient whose mouth opening is very, very restricted. And uh, I've just about managed to get two implants at a very acute angle in, in the mandible because his mouth opening is so poor. And I thought, well, you know, we're trying to extend the prosthesis as far as possible. So an RP5 design with two locators. And uh, it was a sharp, rude awakening when he's fractured. Well, one of the implants he's fractured and the other one actually was explanted uh, by the denture. He literally came out with it. With, and I thought, blimey. Wow. Um, so maybe these these situations now we're having to redo it now with further ridge reduction space problems, because uh, these patients often post oncology have very limited mouth opening and have had to do quite a lot of ridge reduction just to create space for the prosthesis. Um, and to try and extend the prosthesis now so it, it can actually take a bit more uh, support from the alveolar tissues. Um, so, yeah, those, those cases can be quite challenging as well. Mm. And well, since you touched on the number of implants, the next question I wanted to ask, and it just leads beautifully to that, is when I used to see uh, patients, I used to work in, in Oxford, uh, and my principal uh, was an implant-placing dentist, and he um, was happy to do full-arch cases. Uh, but when I saw my own patient who had the quote-unquote terminal dentition or was struggling with an unsuccessful denture and they needed some help, I'd have to always uh, meet with my uh, principal dentist at lunchtime and say, um, here's the photos. Um, I don't know what to quote because I don't know how many implants this patient needs. Uh, and every time I take a, a patient photos, you, you get a different answer. And obviously, everyone knows, every dentist, every student dentist probably knows the, the famous uh, AO4, all on four, right? But is that the rule of thumb, that four implants solves everything? Um, I, I assume not. But tell me, how do you even begin to fathom how many implants are going to be needed for a case? And why is it sometimes vary between four, six, ten? Is it purely financial or is it, to, uh, is it much more anatomical? Yeah, well, so there are lots of reasons. There are multiple factors, to be honest. And I, I went from, you know, from my early training, I'd be trying to put as many implants in as possible. And it's interesting how you almost come full circle. I've, as you know, I've worked very closely with all on four centres as well. And um, you have to be very careful with the number of implants versus long-term maintenance and complications. For example, as I said to you, you may have a patient who's got an edentulous mandible and just is miserable, can't cope with the, uh, the dentures, and they're okay with a full upper denture. Uh, surprisingly, even a single implant in the mandible in the midline to help secure that denture is more than enough. 
Um, most people would probably put two and consider it an RP4 because it's much easier putting two in and getting some support both sides. But if you've got an 80 year old uh, um, who is struggling to, uh, you know, eat satisfactorily, a single implant um, to help secure a lower denture is more than adequate, believe it or not. You may choose to put two, but you sometimes find they can't always get the prosthesis out with two because their manual skills and their dexterity may not be as good and the retention may be so good that you have to then deactivate one and then go back to one. So uh, it's horses for courses. You have to put so many factors in the patient's wishes, desires. The All on Four really sort of took off, I would say, probably about 20 years ago as, as the sort of base standard for trying to provide a cost-effective way of giving patients fixed reconstructions. Um, now, I, there are certain problems, and we've certainly seen them in our, in our own clinic, uh, when only four are used, especially in some patients who are susceptible to perio um, or their quality of bone is not so good. Uh, and it's interesting, having done that for a number of years, and we've managed to uh, sort of repair and try to uh, remedy some of the problems with patients with all on four, I've sort of gone back in and put extra implants in now in the maxilla. So... I've taken a slightly more dimmer view now of the maxilla. If we're going for a fixed reconstruction, which is often what patients are referred to me for, that I, I'm very much of the view that perhaps if I can get six in um, and get a good AP spread, then I'll probably give myself a better insurance policy in the, in the future for any potential complications. Part of the problem with four... Can you define AP spread for, for some of the younger dentists who may not know what that, what that means? Yes, AP is really the anterior-posterior spread and the cantilever design. And I, I've certainly been to lectures and I've, I've, I've heard people who are very well versed in this that they don't worry so much about the extent of the cantilever, especially in the upper jaw. Um, actually, I do. I, I get very paranoid about uh, the extent of cantilevers because we know the longer the cantilever, it's basic physics from, you know, from A-level physics on, on levers, basically. The longer the lever, the greater the force you can generate. And no surprises if you've got a large cantilever, especially in the maxilla, you're going to get more prosthetic and, in my view, surgical complications of bone loss around the implants. Perhaps the peri-implantitis isn't always peri-implantitis. It may be overload of the implants. Um, the difficulty is managing those cases in the long term, um, especially five, ten years down the road. The patient's invested quite a lot of time and money, and you put a lot of effort into it as well. So that if you do get complications, um, uh, you know, how do you deal with it? Uh, and hence why I'm sort of gone back partly to some degree of what I used to do in the old days. Uh, and I try to over-engineer. It's, it's, you know, I don't see a problem with over-engineering because at the end of the day, you, you, it depends on what kind of service and maintenance program you've got for that patient. So ironically, we, I, we did a case just Saturday, George Zerogianis, uh, my periodontist and myself, did an um, upper and lower fixed arch reconstruction uh, for a patient with a complete dental clearance. And the mandible went perfectly well. We managed to get six pretty much straight implants in the mandible, great AP spread up to the first, um, well, actually the second premolar, stroke small cantilever to replace the, the the molars where there was insufficient bone but the upper proved exceptionally difficult i managed to get four good implants in the intercanine region but the posterior implants were an absolute nightmare they really were we i struggled to get pterygoids in um the pterygoid bone was really quite hopeless um 
using all the tricks and it nearly took me three hours to try and get additional implants in those regions. But in the end, I ended, we ended up with eight implants in the upper jaw, two of which were, were buried just to wait for the bone to repair because there were another two which weren't so great. You know, their stability, primary stability wasn't that great. So you still walked out with fixed teeth the same day. So I, I didn't plan to put eight implants in the upper jaw. We were planning just to put maybe four stroke six with possibility of two zygomatic implants or pterygoids. Uh, but life doesn't always work out like that. So you often have to go in with one expectation and, you know, you start struggling a little bit with zygomatics. The mouth opening wasn't as great as I thought. I couldn't quite get the angles to get the zygomatics in. I was hoping and praying that the pterygoids would go in and they proved to be absolutely, you know, very well. Yeah, they weren't as good as I thought. So you often have to think outside the box. And certainly George and I were going, well, now what? We've got four good ones at the front, but they're only as far as the canine region. I'm not going to do a huge cantilever um, because the AP spread now on this is so large. I've got potentially three Pontics cantilevered. Um, mm. and, you know, you're asking for trouble. You need something further back. And sometimes you have to compromise. So I managed to get uh, additional ones in with a little bit of a compromise. Um, I mean, so, so, some people might be listening right now, uh, Harpal. And uh, I remember the first time I came across pterygoid and zygomatic implants. Uh, you know, when, when you're a young dentist or you're a student and, you, and you're thinking implants, and you know, you're looking at uh, implants in the more traditional areas uh, that you'd place them. And then when you first get exposed to weight, you can put uh, implants in these really long things in, in you know, your zygomatic arch areas or your pterygoids. It, 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 bl it blows your mind as a young dentist when you're first getting exposed to Absolutely. this kind of stuff. So some people may have been listening to you saying that and thinking, wait, what? A pterygoid? Um, and you know, some people don't even know how to spell pterygoid. <laughs> So it, it's just it's just how it is. So it's, it's very fascinating. But is there any is there any evidence pointing to because because what, what you've basically alluded to is it depends on your level of experience, Harpal. It depends on your um, successes in the past as a clinician for anything you do in dentistry, the team that you work in, your uh, training about what kind of solutions you can offer your patients. Uh, and some dentists do full arches may not be able to extend to zygomatics, for example. Sure. But is there any evidence for quality of life studies and that, that certain, either fixed versus removal or a number of implants or the AP spread? How much research do we have about the quality of life so that we can, as clinicians, inform our decisions based on that? Well, that's an excellent question, Jazz. And the answer is actually uh, there are lots of quality of life studies available in the dental literature on dental implants. But none of them or very few of them really deal with number of implants per se. They often are just looking at a qualitative sort of factor. How does the patient get on? Patient-orientated outcomes, etc. And um, you know there isn't that sort of study where you can evaluate quality of life with the number of implants, so to speak. There are some comparing fixed versus removable, and there's quite a lot of studies comparing uh, quality of life with, say, just a complete denture versus an implant or a, you know RP4 stroke 5 versus an FP123. And um, the, the studies are equivocal to some degree. We know most of them seem to agree that most patients, if you've made a well-constructed full denture and they're still struggling with it, um, that any form of an implant prosthesis, whether it be removable or fixed, will improve the outcome compared with uh, a, a, a removable denture. That's, that goes probably without saying from most studies. Um, the question really is, are, 
I don't know how people have evaluated outcome for the full dentures. Have they actually made uh, new dentures for those patients like I used to have to at King's? So it begs certain questions there as well. Those studies are not completely foolproof uh, from that perspective. But uh, with regards to fixed and removable, yeah, you can find some studies. There's certainly been uh, studies from 20 years ago with, um, I've, off the top of my head, Saltzman um, did studies tw you know, 20 years ago in, in University of Bern comparing fixed versus removable. Um, and they found actually pretty equivocal outcomes from a patient perspective when you're looking at quality of life factors. Um, now, things have moved on a little bit now. You've got more assessments and the new quality of life uh, guided by the WHO. There's a lot more detail in terms of questions that the, these patients have to answer. And there are, these are very subjective questions a lot of the time. They're sort of often patient-led, which is not a bad thing. But, um, you know, if we want more, more um, science behind it, uh, you have to do more of the mechanical studies and look at forces, etc. And we know... If you measure forces on patients, certainly if you if you look at uh, a patient, if they have their natural dentition with 100 uh, percent worth of occlusal force, uh, if someone's given a fixed reconstruction, they're almost 90 percent there to what the patient had previously. With implant retained dentures, it's a little bit variable it's sort of between 50 and 70 percent in general compared with dentures, which can be you know zero to to you know, to 20 to 30%, depending on how, how well the patient can tolerate these things. Um, but certainly from, from an outcome perspective and quality of life, it is actually very difficult to dissect whether fixed versus removable is better. Um, and that's often where patients' input come into, and obviously their budget as well, because at the end of the day, we are dictated to some degree about what our patients can afford. Um, hence why it's very important to discuss all these avenues. You can explain to patients um, uh, the, the, the advantages and pros and cons of a, an implant-retained denture um, versus a fixed prosthesis. And also ease of maintenance and hygiene. Um, those are the sort of factors patients really do need to understand. And depending on their age as well, I mean, I had a, 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 a GP who was only in his late 50s uh, last week who had very little residual bone. His dentist has been monitoring and maintaining his teeth for the last 20 years and they're pretty terminal actually they're quite loose and they're about to come out and we discussed all these options with him and I said you know you're still relatively young um, what would you like to, to have at the end of the day you know dentures are removable they are cleansable uh, they're easier to remove and, and keep clean but they clearly have some coverage of the palate um, and you know, having something removable for, for this doctor who's still practicing and still communicating with his patients and said, that's not for me. I don't want anything removable. And also there's a psycho, psychosomatic sort of uh, uh, benefit for these patients because they think removable is still not part of them. It's still a sort of, you know, a, a, a inverted commas, a second-hand type of problem to fix, basically, compared with something fixed, which is like my own. And that's important to understand from patients' perspectives as well. Um, but it, it is very difficult. I, I really like that example you gave with the GP. I think it really makes it more tangible. And uh, you know, some, some dentists listen to this. That, that explanation that you give to patients, that's really valuable, actually. Yeah, and I think you have to be honest with them. And just, uh, you know, equally, I've got a, a, a patient at the other age extreme who I'm dealing with at the moment who's had 
uh, an FP3 fixed reconstruction with quite severe bone loss. She's already had zygomatic implants placed elsewhere and she's struggling to keep them clean. Uh, her manual dexterity is not as, as good as perhaps they thought it was going to be. And there are a few other complications I won't go into, which has necessitated her having further treatment with us. But actually, I've convinced her to have something removable. And I said, I think you'd be better off actually with, a, with an RP4, um, primarily because actually you can take it out and clean it and you can look after things. And we've done the first preliminary step for her. And she's over the moon already. She says, why wasn't this offered to me at the beginning? I'm actually really upset. So it does make you think when patients say that, well, maybe we should spend a little more time with them at the beginning explaining these avenues. And I think, uh, unfortunately, in her situation, she'd had very little discussion with all the treatment avenues uh, that she could have explored in the early days. Um, and she's you know, in her 80s as well, so it's not as if she's in the, in the younger age group. And we know what tends to happen as we get older, our skills, our manuals, skills go down. So they may have had great intentions of giving her something which they considered superior, but maybe didn't factor what the patient, uh, the patient variable sort of the, part of the equation is. And that's always a learning point for me as well, just to say, well, would I have done the same? Um, you know, would I have gone straight to a fixed reconstruction? Whereas, uh, and probably, you know, the, 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 the sexy factor of having something fixed is the driving factor because you think I'm giving somebody something which is close to what nature gave them at the beginning. But actually, we've got to think beyond that. We've got to understand there's a patient at the end of it and um, how how they're going to look after it. Does it give them all they need? Does it give them all the function, the phonetics, and more importantly, the you know, physiological support of their lips and the ability to maintain? I think that part is actually very difficult to answer, the maintenance part, which we're not so good at explaining to patients. Um, we assume naturally. That is brilliant. That, yeah. that is fantastic. Yeah. How, how are they going to look after these things? Are they going to get underneath these prostheses? We've actually just been asked, um, um, one of, um, I don't know if you know, Pinadath George, who is part of a, an yep. environment. George and Pinadath and I have been talking to each other about running a course at uh, Elmfield House later this year, which we're, we're just in the final oh, state uh, in the process of setting up, of, of trying to explain these differences as well to to dentists uh, and actually how to service and maintain them. So part of the lecture course is not just us saying this is how we put the implants in and how we restore them, but we've got a hygienist and George, our periodontist on board, to say, well, look, these are the problems you may encounter. How do you look after these patients? How are patients expected to clean around them? And I think that's perhaps not told enough, if that makes sense, um, because that's the long-term game. That's about keeping things going for the next 10, 15 plus years with hopefully very few complications. Brilliant. I just want to just in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you uh, one more question. Sure. Uh, this is a bit more uh, dentist specific focus in terms of training pathways, because you mentioned about uh, in the course and educating mm. dentists that you're uh, taking part in with, with, with the Penelas George as well. So it, it flows nicely to ask you with implants, when implant education, implant courses are being taught, to young dentists for the first time. So, you know, dentists learning how to place their first implant. And the advice we're taught is, you know, start with a lower molar, maybe an upper premolar, away from sinus, good bone, the low lip line patient, low aesthetic uh, expectations as your first case. And that's what we're taught. But then I was once speaking to Pindath George, actually, a few years ago on the phone. 
before I moved to Singapore, I was asking about, I was at the time I was considering getting an implant and stuff. And he was asking me, okay, what kind of implants do you want to do? Do you want to do implants, uh, you know, to replace the odd missing tooth or you want to do uh, for larches? I was like, gosh, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, shouldn't I start with one? And he was like, you know what? They're completely different kettle of fish. Mm. So is there a case for dentists who perhaps are passionate about dentures and, and, those big changes that you give to someone from going no teeth to having lots of teeth uh, and, and really improving their lives that way rather than someone who sees uh, a more general population with more teeth. Uh, for that dentist, perhaps to skip straight to learning full arch or do you think, no, every dentist who's learning implant is better suited to learning how to restore the single tooth in a, in a, in a bounded yeah. uh, saddle area uh, and then, then develop on to full arches or is there a case for someone to go straight to full arches and learn the basics of that? Yeah, there are totally different skill sets, I have to be honest. But like most things, um, in, in the early stages of one's career, I think, and I certainly have uh, you know, taught dentists around me in this sort of fashion by getting them to restore a lot more of the simple cases first. I think once you understand prosthodontics, the implant surgery becomes much more straightforward afterwards because it's prosthodontically led. If you don't understand the prosthetics, and I think that's where a lot of complications arise, is because actually there's no forethought to where you're going to end up. Well, work backwards. So if you can understand where the outcome's supposed to be, then the implant should naturally sort of follow um, on from the prosthetic part of the training. So a lot of the dentists who certainly work around with me, I don't let them go wild and start putting implants in straight away because... I've seen the harm and the damage it can do for patients because they just want to get numbers in. They think they're going to get their confidence by putting lots and lots of them in. And all you tend to do is create lots and lots of problems and don't necessarily understand how to fix them. So my view is actually learn how to restore. Once you've restored a few um, and got your grasp and understanding the space and occlusion, then move on to putting the implants in. And that's the natural progression. And Hodge is at that point at the moment. He's missed out a lot of the, the stages at the moment uh, with regards to what I used to do. We used to have to work on models and you know drill a, drill a hole in a, in a stone model and work out the prosthetic shape before we even... And now we've got all this clever digital stuff. We've just invested in the X-Guide and he did his first X-Guide implant uh, on Saturday. Um, and that's the next sort of progression, really, is to, is to put implants in in bounded situations, get a good outcome, understand what gives you a good outcome, basically. And I certainly wouldn't suggest jumping into fixed full arch reconstructions because often there are so many nuances of learning which you miss along the way with single teeth that actually you can adapt to fixed arch reconstructions um, later on. And it might take you a few years. I, I don't expect somebody to rush into full arch reconstructions from from day one and be an expert within five years. I've always said, go and learn how to make dentures first, because once you understand how to make full, full dentures, actually everything else becomes a lot more straightforward. So from a natural pers uh, progression perspective, I would say always start simple, build up uh, experience on simple cases first, put in plants, and I totally agree, put in plants in the lower sort of four, five, six region, as long as you've got acres of bone, Avoid sinus lifts and, and all that, because if you make mistakes, and that can really put you off. 
And I've certainly seen patients uh, or dentists who said, you know, I, I put an implant uh, in and did this size. It all went pear-shaped. The implant got infected. The patient ended up with raw ankle communication. Uh, I got sued, you know, all sorts of things. And they okay, maybe that wasn't a great, a great way to start. Or perhaps they didn't have the right mentoring at that time. And I think that's crucial. Um, so I, I'm very cautious. Um, and I certainly, you know, we've run zygomatic courses, and I'm very cautious on those as well. I certainly have had um, surgeons who've come out after a, doing a phantom head and said, oh, this looks really straightforward. I'm ready to do my first case next week. Um, and I did have that a few years ago, actually. I was quite shocked when I said, well, actually, you know, uh, we might make it look easy on this hands-on course, but there's lots of technical bits which you don't realise until the day of surgery. And he didn't listen to me. He phoned me up Monday morning and said, I'm about to put this zygomatic implant in. Can I just run through it with you over the phone? And I went, <laughs> I have to say, I was pretty shocked. I said, I'm really sorry. I can't help you any further. I did say to you, you need a mentor. You mustn't put this implant in without guidance and supervision. Because if you mess up, the consequences are quite severe. And I take no responsibility for things going wrong. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's horses for... We, you know, we often have overconfidence in ourselves because you learn something, you're eager to get on with it. But you don't understand the hiccups and the, the, the trips that are along the way that you're going to encounter because you're not experienced enough. Uh, and that's where mentoring, I think, is crucial. So your boss yeah. is absolutely right. You know, you may, you may come up with different answers for a different number of implants because each case is slightly different. The volume of bone is slightly different. This patient may have acres of bone, and you might say, well, I could put six to eight implants in, um, you know, versus the standard all on four. So each case is different and you do need a little bit of guidance for it. And there's no cast iron, uh, you know, solution to a lot of these patients. You can often uh, adapt techniques as you as you go along. And I treat my zygomatic and pterygoid cases exactly the same way. They still need the workup at the beginning. You've got to work out where the final tooth position should be. Those are quite challenging, even when you are putting zygomatic and pterygoid implants in, to get the right outcome. But if you do your basics and you do, you know, you, you do your groundwork, then as you gain more and more experience, you'll get more and more confident in doing things. And then you move on naturally to progression-wise. You probably would want to do sinus lifts, etc. Uh, get your experience in sinus lifts um, and zygomatics. Yeah, they're you know, pterygoids are the ultimate. It's not something even. Although a lot of dentists I've trained over the years and surgeons, including Max Fax, not everyone gets it. Um, and they're not easy to do. Um, but the most important thing which we do try and get them to understand is not about the surgery. It's about the outcome. It's the prosthetic outcome. It's just trying to get that patient the right superstructure to fulfill their needs, whether it's removable or fixed. That's down to you. And we'll all have our debates uh, about whether it's fixed or removable. And I certainly... I presented a case a few years ago in Italy, actually, to a professor and showed him pre-op studies. And I asked a, a group in, in the audience what they would do in this case. And nearly all of them, you know, understandably said it looks like an RP4 to us. You know, and I can understand a lot of volume loss. Patient had been adventurous for 20 odd years, severe bone atrophy of the maxilla. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, that's certainly an option. That's probably what the patient you know, would benefit from. But that's not what she wanted. She didn't want something removable. Her psychological aspects was she wanted something fixed, even though there was severe bone loss. And I managed to show how we managed to do a fixed reconstruction with zygomatic implants. And she got 
basically what she desired, but it was really still planning it and understanding the prosthetic stage. So even, uh, you know, at the other extreme, you can get professors who are very... Um, uh, the professor I presented this to was quite actually horrified. We put zygomatic implants here for this patient. I said, but it, it fulfilled the patient's <laughs> needs. Um, you know, she got the outcome that she wanted. Um, I understand perhaps a removable option might might have been feasible for her and certainly easier to clean. But I had to deal with the psycho psychological aspects of this patient, and she was miserable with dentures. And for her, even anything removable wasn't right for her. So those are the other facts. We have to work within our own skill set, I have to say, and thankfully I'm, I'm blessed with a good team around me. They're the ones who make uh, make us look good at the end of the day and uh, can give us the outcomes that we want. You need really good, excellent technical support to do these things. And uh, thank, thankfully, as I said, we've got Harge and, and uh, Manish, who are great prosthodontists as well. So they're always teaching me things. You know, I, I never too old to learn as they say and you forget certain things at certain stages and you go yeah i forgot that yeah that's a good idea yeah that's a that's a great solution for the patient but it's really about being open having an open discussion with the patient as well and being frank with them and we certainly have no problems laying it on the table telling them the all the pros and cons so that they can make a decision at the end of the day they may choose you know one pathway over the other Amazing. And uh, I, I think what, what I've gathered here is that you, every time you present something to a group of specialists or, or dentists, Harpal, you've got to have thick skin. So I know you must have very thick skin. Amount of controversy you must get, you know, amount of attacks, amount of amount of debates. And I'm sure you love it. And then you're great. I can tell you're great at it. And, and you know, a massive respect to you for what you do. Uh, but you have to have thick skin because, as you say, you know, there's so many. I mean, there's great areas in all mm. dentistry, but from having this chat with you today, Implants is a whole different field in terms of grey areas and uh, lots of strong opinions and and subspecialty that like an oral surgeon wow. might see something completely different to a periodontist wow. might see com something completely different to a prosthodontist right and then you have those Absolutely. sort of uh, arguments uh, so I'm gonna let you have the mic in a moment to just uh, wrap up but. One thing I want to remind you is that if you could send me some links for any dentist who want to uh, learn more oh, about absolutely. your programs, yeah, about zygomatics, about the course later on, I want to stick down the website before I get bombarded with messages. Uh, and also any any closing comments for, for dentists who listened all the way to the end, and we appreciate that so much. Uh, no, really. I think the most important part is just go over treatment planning, discuss with your patient in detail, really take a detailed history from your patient, what their, their goals and desires are. That's so key to the equation. I think... You miss so much sometimes if you don't listen. Sometimes Martin Keller always used to tell me this at the beginning. And you know, one thing I do try and listen is just, just zip up at the beginning. Ask the patient why they're there and just keep your mouth shut and listen to what they have to say and write it down. That's so important because you learn so much about what the patient wants and their expectations. And ultimately, just to spend time with them to explain that you understand their problem. So you can, you may sometimes at the end of your consultation just say, right, so just to summarize, I think you've said you really do not like dentures or you don't mind dentures. You just want to have an improvement in quality of life. Um, you know, it may well be that a fixed solution or removal solution is suitable for, for either of those cases. The workup, in my opinion, is often the same. Uh, you know, CT scans, getting them back and doing a diagnostic setups see the patient multiple times don't rush into it and i think that's the other problem you sometimes see when patients are traveling and trying to get treatment done quickly sometimes you miss out on those salient uh, 
questions that the patient doesn't fully understand. Certainly we've seen that when patients have gone for dental tourism and they've come back and their expectations have never been met. There's actually probably no one's listened to what their real desires are or spent time explaining things to them and what the limitations of those treatment avenues are. Um, and ultimately, if you haven't got the skills, you know, there are plenty of people out there who will help you. They're great mentors. Uh, we're only just one amongst many different uh, clinics uh, throughout the United Kingdom who can help you. So, you know, I always say to, to dentists, pick up the phone, ping us an email. We'll have a chat. Sometimes I'll have a, a discussion with them over WhatsApp and just look at the scans and look at the photographs and say, yeah, well, this is possible. Uh, give them an outline of likely sort of treatment plans just based on their assessments and then before you've even seen the patient. Um, and then I often strongly encourage a joint consultation. Uh, if the patient uh, is happy to come for a consultation with the dentist, that really, I think, is, is crucial. Firstly, the patient really appreciates it. They, that the, the dentist is spending the time and it's part of their learning experience because they may not, have, as you say, have ever come across zygomatic implants or pterygoid. They don't often know what to ex explain to their patients. And part of my role is explaining that to the dentists as well so that their patients are well informed as to the treatment options. So, yeah, now keep... Hapa, when these dentists come, and, um, uh, come to these consultations mm. with you, um, do you take them to Pizza Express or Nando's afterwards? Yeah, I yeah. really need to know. At the moment, nowhere. <laughs> uh, they have to bring their own sandwiches at this particular moment uh, due to COVID restrictions. But you know, we're, we're not averse to having a Pizza Express, I have to be honest. In fact, there's a lovely Italian place around the corner from us. And occasionally we have a, a very nice Italian meal. It's, it's, I, I love the social part of it as well, actually, because it, it's a great way of meeting new people and new minds. And um, I, you know, I think the future is always the, 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 the people around you to somebody and the youth coming up who have got lots of questions and you know, make challenges on you, make you think things in a different way. So no, I'm always for that. I'm, I'm very much open. We have an open sort of arrangement. And you know, we have no problems. There's no wrong or right way. We like to discuss things uh, openly with patients as, as well as the referring dentists and uh, iron out all the sort of pros and cons. And then usually the patient chooses the right treatment option. Um, and more importantly, if they've never seen anything like that before, they usually go, wow, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know my patients could have that. And I think that's always a great reward as well, because those patients, you know, they thank you. They love the dentist as well. They've changed their life often, actually, in, in those situations. And they really can be true life changers. So, yeah, by all means, uh, you know, just remember there are patients out there and it's important to, you know, give them all the treatment options. Even if you don't know about them yourself, there are plenty of people um, who can advise and guide you and uh, at least do joint treatment. And I'm hoping this little chat today would have helped a lot of people. To, I'm, I'm, I guarantee you, Hapal, to you, the language of FP1, mm. RP4, that sort of stuff is like second nature. To a lot no. of dentists, it's not. No. And I think they would learn even just from that, the summary and the, and the wonderful things that the way you explain to patients, including that GP. I think today's episode is full of lots of communication gems. But also, you highlighted the importance of having a support network near you, uh, including mentors like yourself, who you can pick up the phone. Mm. And I love the fact that you said that, look, WhatsApp, you know, I, uh, despite all the doom and gloom, I keep saying there's mm. never been a better time to be a dentist who's hungry for Absolutely. knowledge. There's never Absolutely. been a better time in your life. You can connect to anyone, 
anywhere in the world uh, with a click of a button, WhatsApp, uh, social yeah, media, uh, respecting privacy and confidentiality, but to gain knowledge and advice. So that's wonderful. And uh, you know, I thank you so absolutely. much for, for giving your uh, time from your very busy schedule no uh, for to make this episode. Uh, I really appreciate it. No, thank that. you for your time as well. It's great to meet you. There we have it. Harpal Chana, everyone. I hope you found that useful. I hope you were making notes. It's kind of one of those episodes where you have to go back and, and maybe make notes. But hey, don't worry if you didn't, because I've got an infographic for you. So if you want a nice little summary, uh, hit the at Protrusive Dental Instagram, and I'll put a little infographic on there. Uh, also on the protrusive.co.uk website. And some big announcements coming very soon, including, so I know many of you will listen all the way to the end, but many of you will just, you know, switch off at this point because it's me blabbering on. However, if you get to listen to this bit, a little secret for you. The secret is that the Protrusive app is coming out very soon. And on there, I hope to make it a little home for all the different infographics, PDFs, references that I share. So it'll be an easy place for you to catch that up. Anyway, uh, let's keep that a secret for now. And I'll catch you in the next episode, guys. Thanks so much for listening. 